On this new series of the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast, you're invited to listen in on the guest visits to my Hustle and Grit class taking place virtually at the Ivy Business School. Hustle and Grit is a course that we created to teach you everything that you didn't learn in business school in business school. In it, we invite world-class innovators and entrepreneurs to talk about topics like motivation, how to learn, what to prioritize, and even how to be happier. In these episodes, you'll hear live audio from my classes because honestly, there's just something different about the energy, excitement, and honesty taking place in a live classroom environment. So get comfortable, grab a seat, and don't worry, unlike my real class, I won't cold call you. Enjoy. David is a Canadian journalist. He was born in Toronto. He's written for publications like New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, Bloomberg, The New York Times, GQ, and Toronto Life. He's authored several books, including The Revenge of Analog, Tastemakers, and Save the Deli, which won a James Beard Award. His new book was the one that really caught my attention, however, The Soul of the Entrepreneur. And typically, when you think about startups, you think of you know people dropping out of college, raising venture capital, but really, entrepreneurs come in all shapes, colors, backgrounds, uh, and sizes. And so in David's new book, he spoke about he spoke with entrepreneurs all over the country, big and small, these side hustles and full-time gigs. And he dug into how entrepreneurship really changes lives. So please, if you don't mind, give a nice warm welcome to Mr. David Sachs. David, he's still with us. There we go. I thought you were going to meet me. Hi. Uh, nice to meet you guys. Eric, good to see you. I didn't know I had to wear a suit, but this is the most I've been dressed up in like four months. So you, you don't, I appreciate that. You've welcome. got a shirt on today. You're welcome. And hi there. Westerns, uh, Westerners hope you're not the ones who are going out to the bars and parties. I'm sure um, they're not. Yeah. You're the good one to the business students. I'm sure um, so yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm, I'm glad you started off where you started off, Eric. And, uh, it's interesting to hear what, what everybody thinks. So I'm interested to sort of get into it. Yeah. So I want to start with, I know your family has an interesting entrepreneurial backstory. So if you don't mind, maybe we'll start there before we jump into your book and what you learned. So where did your family's experience with entrepreneurship start? I mean, I think it's, it, it comes down from every sort of generation of my family, you know, the oldest generation of my family, I know that's in Canada, like came in the 1850s and they were tobacco merchants. And then in the clothing business, like many Jewish immigrants to Montreal and and in the tool business. And, you know, there's very few members of my family that I can point to that have jobs and careers in employment, working for other people. Um, my father, since he graduated law school, basically just went and worked for himself and has always done that. My mother had a clothing wholesale business. My mother-in-law, same thing. She sold wholesale clothes, like from card tables, even though she's one of the first females in Canada to get an MBA. And, you know, I've always worked for myself. I think since the day I graduated from McGill, I, I went out and decided I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't I tried to apply for some places. I couldn't find a job. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just freelance and write and write articles and write, write, um, write books. And, um, and so I, I think that's typical of a lot of people who can look at their families and see this sort of through line of entrepreneurship. And yet, even though there are people who have had great success within the family or within friends of mine and have done very well for themselves in building businesses or careers where they are entrepreneurs or on their own. There's no, there's no grand Titan that there's no names that you would know about. There's no Elon Musk in my family or, uh, or anyone sort of that equivalent. Nobody's, nobody's named a business school after them. And I think that's true for most entrepreneurs. You, you may know people who are successful. You sure all know or related to someone who has their own business or works for themselves. But when you go and learn about entrepreneurship at a business school uh, or you read a book about it, it, 
doesn't tend to focus on the 99% of entrepreneurs out there who are people like myself or my wife or my father or maybe some of you know your family and relatives and friends who go and work for themselves and may have a business, may not even have a formal business, but might just be self-employed like I am and do it for all sorts of different reasons that are probably not something that you discuss in a class like this. So when uh, we opened the class, we had a chance to get to know everybody and wanted to learn like what people want to learn about entrepreneurship and why they took the class. And a handful of people mentioned sort of the sensationalized version of entrepreneurship that I think your book sort of tackles and that what that article tackles, you know, you, you drop out of college, you start a mobile app and you raise a bunch of venture capital money. Where did that start? Like when did that actually, I know it wasn't that way forever. Where did that get started? You know, I, I think it's it's always been there. I mean, the popular vision of entrepreneurship is kind of something that comes out of the industrial revolution, right? You know, prior to that, you had wealthy people who were merchants or, you know, wealthy individuals, but, you know, you were in a system in Europe where it all depended on whether you were a king or not. And so the, the industrial revolution happens in the middle of the 19th century, and suddenly you have these technological innovations that open up all sorts of businesses and you have these business people who become these global names, Rockefeller, Carnegie, JP Morgan, Thompson here in Canada, whatever, I don't know, who was the, the king of Canadian furs. And of course that that grows with, with different eras, but it becomes like that, that individual becomes sort of a hero in their own story. They write books, they're, they themselves become these sort of popular celebrities. You really see it growing in in the culture starting with the computer age and so you know in the 1980s you have bill gates you have steve jobs you have others like larry ellison who because of the nature of the technology and the 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 sort of exponential growth that it affords are able to build these tremendously successful powerful and influential businesses seemingly overnight and they're not the sort of business heroes that you would read about that were sort of known. People like Lee Iacocca, you know, the great auto magnate from Chrysler, let's say, or Warren Buffett or something like that. It is, you know, there is this, there's almost like a pop culture element to them. I mean, Steve Jobs has had more movies made about his life than Martin Luther King. I was at a retreat, like a corporate retreat center outside Toronto um, a couple summers ago. And, you know, it was like a real like conference center, very whatever. They have a lot of conferences and they had a wall of heroes. And it was literally like a picture of Mahatma Gandhi in a quote, Mother Teresa in a quote, Martin Luther King Jr. in a quote, you know, Barack Obama. And then it was like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Peter Thiel. Like it, it suddenly the idea of an entrepreneur was more than just this person is successful and built a business. They were a moral force, a force of leadership, a character that was worthy of uh, a cultural interest that was far more than just the business and the invention they made. And that over the past 20 something years has really accelerated tremendously with the internet revolution, the mobile evolution and the revolution and, you know, various other um, digital technologies that we've seen so much so that it's become this sort of packaged thing. So now when you talk about that myth of the startup entrepreneur, 
we have an idea in our head of what that means. Oh, it's a young individual. They're probably probably male. They're probably white. And they probably went to Stanford or Harvard, right? One of those two schools. Sorry, Ivy. Nobody's, you don't have your hero yet. Um, and they, they're they really bold and they're brash and they say cool things and they probably dropped out and they say to hell with authority and they're going to change the world, right? We've all watched Silicon Valley on HBO. I mean, it's it's this trope, but it's become that narrative that we've come to expect. We've been fed it. And so often what you see is people playing into it. The best example of that is Elizabeth Holmes. Does everyone know who Elizabeth Holmes is? No. Elizabeth Holmes was a 19-year-old Stanford University student about, uh, I guess, a decade ago who decided she wanted to reinvent the way blood testing was done. And you would do it by pricking your finger and putting a drop instead of taking a needle out of your arm. And she managed to build a company called Theranos uh, by dropping out of Stanford and raising, uh, I think it was like, I don't know, uh, $70 million worth of venture capital money, maybe more. Maybe it was um, a couple hundred million dollars worth of venture capital money, massive investors, you know, uh, huge people on her board. It was like the, the, basically every former chief of staff of various presidents were on her board. And the whole thing was a sham. There was never any machine. The technology never worked. Now she's being tried um, in court and actually I think just claimed insanity the other day as part of her defense. But what she sold the world was herself as a vision of an entrepreneur. Her dream was to become the next Steve Jobs, so much so that she dressed in black turtlenecks, that she ate the same diet as Jobs, that she treated people like crap in the same way that Steve Jobs did. Like you could read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson and you could follow her career and it was this parallel thing. And the staff said they they did the same thing. But she was so successful in raising all this money because she knew that was what people expected of an entrepreneur. They didn't expect a middle-aged African-American woman, for example, uh, that wouldn't have flown, but she fit into that into that type. And so, so what you've seen is that entrepreneurship has become, well, it's still this broad thing of, as we said, oh, microphone over, anyone who um, goes out and works for themselves, in the culture, it became so lionized and yet in that very narrow way that it excluded the vast majority of entrepreneurs by who they are, by what their background is, by the industry, and most importantly, I think, by their motivation for being an entrepreneur because no two entrepreneurs want to do the same thing, even if they're doing the same business. So we'll go back to that original metaphor you talked about, Eric, uh, the pizza business, right? There are a hundred places to get a pizza. I'm sure in London, uh, definitely here in Toronto, a place like New York, whatever, right? And yet each one of them has their own thing. This one's going to be the high-end Neapolitan place with the 500 degree oven. This place is the 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 chain that's going to be the next pizza pizza, the next Domino's. This is the just greasy 3 a.m. late night slice place that you're going to go after the bar is let out. And Every owner behind them, they're not all trying to become that next Domino's or Pizza Pizza. They want to do something. Someone might just be happy making the perfect pizza. Someone might just do it because it's a way for them to have a business that they work five days a week and it'll put their kids through college. Maybe they're a recently arrived Canadian and they wanted something that they could get into in order to make sure their kid can go to Ivy and get a business degree and go on and get a good job in banking or consulting, whatever. All of those motivations are, are genuine. They're all entrepreneurs, but we only really talk about and teach 
that one example, which is like, oh, you want to start a pizza business? What's the most disruptive pizza business you can do? Here's how you can get all sorts of venture or private equity financing in order to leverage that the most and then innovate so you can be the biggest pizza chain in the shortest amount of time. But that model of pizzeria, to use the original Italian term, might not be the one that you actually want, might not be the one that speaks to you. Maybe you just want to sling the perfect pie and that's okay. And I used to be a food writer back um, in the early part of this career. And I interviewed tons of people who owned cupcake bakeries, sandwich shops, restaurants, pizza places that used to be management consultants, lawyers, um, they had MBAs. And it was like, I was doing that and I got fed up with it. And I really just wanted to make the perfect pizza or open this type of pizzeria or whatever. And I did this because this is what appealed to me. And that's the thing that I think we tend to forget about entrepreneurship. When we talk about it in an academic context, we see it as an economic activity, but fundamentally it is an emotional, personal activity, right? If you are going to go and leave the certainty of a job and the salary and benefits that come with it and the check that comes every two weeks, it's not a rational economic decision. Most businesses fail. We know that most people who go to be entrepreneurs are not successful in the way that they imagine. And yet they're driven to do it by something that is inherently true to them, which is this personal emotional motivation. And that differs for each entrepreneur. And so it is as diverse as, you know, the faces in this class and the colors of the rainbow, so to speak. That was a very, very, very roundabout answer. You covered a lot of ground and I, I like it on it, right? So. No, uh, but if you were, you get a good grade. Um, okay. So it sounds like, like I, you, you could take it to mean that it's uh, sensationalizing it as a bad thing. But I'd say when I was in the shoes of the students in this class, uh, I took this class when it first started at Ivy. I had those same ambitions. I think I was drawn in by the sensationalized version of entrepreneurship. And I think part of that is what drew me to it. And then maybe I would not have been drawn to it if I wasn't thinking that I could be the next, maybe not Steve Jobs, but you know, whomever the Canadian version and the life that all of that affords. So is it a, is it a bad thing net net for entrepreneurship or even if people don't ultimately achieve it, or is it a positive thing and that it's getting more people interested in entrepreneurship to begin with? It's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. So the positive is entrepreneurship is cool. Entrepreneurship is interesting. As maybe Kyle said, you know, Gen Z is the most interested in entrepreneurship of, of any generation. Kyle, I don't know if that was you or one of the heads to your right. We'll give him credit. Um, it was you, attaboy. And so, yeah, if, if you know, the, the lionization of Elon Musk or the, the wonderful puff pieces about the brilliance of Tobias, Luke, or, um, or whatever the latest genius to sort of create something and be super successful gets more people motivated in business and interested in starting their own thing and leads them to, instead of opting for graduating and going to work at McKinsey and being miserable, you're going to be miserable if you go into consulting, guys. Hot tip. But rich, but miserable. You know, if they're like, no, I'm going to start that pizza place, or I'm going to start that car parts business, or I'm going to start that flower delivery app, or whatever the hell that is calling you, then that's a positive thing. The downside of it and the danger is that when we reduce entrepreneurship down to that one model or that one archetype, 
And we teach it in that way. And we finance in that way through what I assume is the Ivy Business School Incubator, which has probably a number of venture capitalists on its board and has a pitch demo day and a startup day and show me your hockey stick. And everybody does their five minute pitch with the same stupid you know, PowerPoint presentation. You're asking people to paint by numbers in a very small box. And you're, you're actually limiting the possibilities of what people can see as a potential opportunity in business. You're getting people to, to feed what they think that model wants, which is like, okay, well, it's got to be a fast scaling business. I got to show them what they want because that's what these funders like. It's like Dragon's Den um, or it's Dragon's Den, right? Shark Tank in the US. Like, it, you know, it, you got to go up and you got to show the type of business that Kevin O'Leary wants. To hell with Kevin O'Leary. I mean, the reality is, most people that you go and talk to out in the community, in the London community, in the Toronto community, Ottawa, wherever you guys are from or, or from parts further away, like they didn't build their business by writing up a pitch deck and standing in front of a bunch of wealthy investors and saying, here's how my idea is going to change the world. They just went out and built that business and did it for their own reasons and they succeeded or failed based upon what happened in the cycle of that business. And the other main problem with that is that that model of entrepreneurship, which we'll call the, the, you know, I call the Silicon Valley startup model, which is very much based upon that, right? What's your idea? How are you going to present it? Give me your pitch deck. Where's the hockey stick? We're going to inject some venture capital, yada, yada, yada. It's exclusionary by its nature. 90, I, I want, can, can someone guess what percentage of venture capital funding in the United States went to companies led by women uh, in 2000 and 18, which was the last year it was available. Anybody want to hazard a guess? What percentage of VC funding in the U.S. went to companies led by women? We'll take uh, looking for answers, maybe in the chat. Let's see. Let's Throw see some answers chat. in there. 10%, 1 1%, 1%, 7%. Yeah, it was like 2.8%, which was an all-time high. So congratulations, ladies. The glass ceiling has been shattered. You know, uh, similar numbers for for minority founders, Black, Latino founders, this was in the US. You know, you see a similar thing here in Canada. Most of the venture capital funding goes to people who graduated from Harvard or Stanford. It's like 40%. The vast majority of venture capital funding goes to companies that are in the San Francisco Bay Area and then New York City. Even Seattle, home to Microsoft and Amazon, gets like, I don't know, 3% of VC funding. So it is a system that excludes the vast majority of people who are entrepreneurs. And you could say, well, you know, the people who go to Stanford are geniuses and they deserve it, but that excludes a lot of you who I'm, I'm looking at here. And so the issue isn't that we've glorified entrepreneurship, it's that we've glorified only one flavor of it, to use the Ben and Jerry's thing. We've, we've glorified the the I was going to make up some stupid Ben and Jerry's name that would involve keep, keep going with Musk this yeah. or something. But if anybody can think of a Ben and Jerry's name that involves Elon Musk or Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, um, please tweet it in here. We'll take um, uh, we'll take votes in the <laughs> chat or in the Slack channel. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Crushing it flakes or whatever. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, you know, if you're only promoting that one type of thing, it it is turtleneck toffee. Bless you, Dalton. God bless you. That's genius. If you're only promoting one type of entrepreneurship, one, you're doing a disservice to all the people who might be excited about entrepreneurship, but may only see it in a narrow framework and may not see themselves 
in that because they don't have the expertise or the knowledge or it's again doesn't speak to them and so we'll go and take that boring uh job at deloitte and have their souls sucked out of them and then only later in life realize that this was the thing that they want to do but more importantly than that what we're talking about are some of these fundamental issues that we're talking about today which is economic inequality and the inequality of opportunity, right? One of the fastest growing groups of entrepreneurs are women of color uh, in Canada, in the United States, elsewhere in the Western world, right? Black women, Latino women, brown women, indigenous women, they are starting businesses at a faster rate and growing every year. And yet, of course, they get a percentage of funding and percentage of, of courses taught about them. The stuff doesn't reflect them because it's not that big thing. And so, yeah, maybe they're starting a nail salon. Maybe they're starting a small uh, home catering business or a daycare business or something that's going to appeal to that knowledge or skill set. But if you're not promoting that, if that seems excluded and those people are not only seeing themselves less likely to be able to start something, but when they start it, less likely to get funding and support and education, then you're already growing the gap of inequality that exists in the economy and in the society. And so we know that, you know, for immigrants, for new Canadians, for people of color, for example, group, indigenous people, Canadians, these, we're talking about groups that are, are dealing with a systemic disadvantage. One of the things that has been shown to, over the long term, shift that disadvantage is entrepreneurship, right? For many, I mean, who here is, is comes from a family of immigrants, second generation or, or third generation, right? Who here in that, of, of those families of immigrants have, have family members who are entrepreneurs? Many, pretty much one of those hands goes up. Why? Because they're like, oh, Mr. Boyle, what did you do in India? Um, oh, I was an engineer. Okay, well, sorry, you don't qualify for that anymore, but here you go. Here's, you know, good, good luck doing something. And so I imagine that I'm just writing the narrative here that that family member decided to open up their own business out of either an idea or a lack of other option. They became an entrepreneur and that allowed for that intergenerational transfer of wealth that you don't get when you work at a Timmy's. And so if we don't focus and make ex more accessible that version of entrepreneurship, which is the entrepreneurship that 99% of people are going to be more in touch with than the founder of some genius company, which is always going to happen. You're always going to have your huge successes out there in the world of business, wherever you are, whatever the circumstances, we're doing a disservice to entrepreneurship. We're actually lessening it. And as much as you may want to be one, it, it, it becomes less accessible. So can you paint a picture then? Short answer, uh, short yeah, no, this is, this is good because you're covering a lot of the questions that I had in, in yeah. one. So we can go past 430, Eric, don't worry. So still a handful of people are thinking this is all well and good for everybody else, but like I'm different, you know, I'm going to, I'm still going to go for it, which they, I hope they are. I hope they are the one, but could you paint a little picture? You, you did your homework here. You traveled around uh, not just Canada, but the U S and maybe further than that. And you talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs who, despite the fact that they aren't the next Steve jobs have pretty darn good lives. And some of them define that by making decent money. Some of them define that by having a good lifestyle, the thinking about the Rockaway beach story. So could you maybe share some of the stories of entrepreneurs who, uh, assuming that these people are going to learn everything they need to know in this class in order to be successful, of course, but what are some of the nice stories that don't end up like Steve jobs, but still end up pretty happy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Tracy, 
Tracy Abalski is, uh, you know, grew up outside New York City in New Jersey, um, decided to become a pastry chef, I guess, in her early 20s after working in a bar, graduating from like graphic design school, realizing she didn't want to do art and got to become a really well-known pastry chef in some high-end New York restaurants where, you know, if you are a, a, a chef or a cook, to be like written up in the New York Times and one of the top pastry chefs in New York City is, you know, you're in the you're in the prof- you're in the NBA leagues of um, cooking, but you know the job was a grind. She would work in basement kitchens without windows, from early in the morning to late in the night. You know, working for male chefs who would treat her like crap for very little pay, and of course, you know the male chefs would get promoted ahead of her. And and you know she was burning out like many people do in many businesses, especially that one. And she also moved out to a place of New York City called Rockaway Beach, which is actually like you can take the subway to it. And it's a beach community on the edge of New York in Queens, kind of where JFK Airport is. And you can go surfing there. I used to go surfing there. And she got into surfing. She was doing it with another um, friend of hers who was also a chef at the restaurant and moved out there and was like, you know what? To hell with this. Like, I'm going to, I just want to live out here. I want to surf. I want to enjoy my life. I want to work. But I'm done working at these restaurants. You know, I'm done with that. This is not the dream that I thought it was going to be. And she started by baking croissants and pastries in like a broken down shack in a fishing marina. And, you know, she was dealing with toxic waste and all these fumes and the, the oven wasn't working. But like every morning she would, you know, sit there and roll croissanto looking at the sunrise over the bay and smoke a joint. And she's like, this is great you know, borrowed a bunch of money, you know, took loans from the bank, opened up a little bakery coffee shop called the Rockaway Beach Bakery, and basically opened up. And and that's what she does. Like every morning she wakes up, she takes a bong hit. She actually has, I've not seen a bong since I was in university, but this is a grown woman who takes bong hits. Something to learn there. She goes out, puts on her wetsuit, walks like 500 feet into the ocean, goes surfing for an hour, you know, watches the sunrise, takes a shower, takes her bike or skateboard along the boardwalk, looking at the dolphins jumping, opens up her bakery, works her ass off, like rolling dough, making coffee, making pastries for eight straight hours where she barely has time to like take a break to go pee, sells all that stuff, talks to people is sort of the center of this community, you know, closes up, cleans up, preps the stuff the next day, takes the bike back, Another bong hit, surf, dinner, hanging out with friends, goes to bed early, repeat that six days a week, you know, with like maybe a week off a year, right? So she works really hard. She makes money, but she doesn't make tons of money. She's not making exponential growth. She's not trying to franchise this thing. She wants it to be a lifestyle business. The business was designed to be a lifestyle business. And if you speak to a venture capitalist or anyone in sort of the world of private equity or something, a lifestyle business is a four-letter word that is the least desirable thing because you can't extract greater profit out of it. It exists in this sort of sustainable state for the owner. But if you're that owner, a lifestyle business is great because it affords you the thing that everybody wants and is very hard to buy when you're working your butt off at a job at a law firm or, or any sort of business that's sort of seeking that exponential growth which is that lifestyle. It's time with your family. It's time with your friends. It's time to do the things like surf that you want to do. You know, read the biography of Elon Musk, read the biography of Steve Jobs. And beyond the greatness and the genius are the stories of two guys who churned through marriages, abandoned their children, never took a vacation, never decided to sort of 
enjoy the things in life. And they're hailed as geniuses, rightly so, for their inventions and their ideas and whatever. But like, you know, you have to question at a certain point what life is. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or I'll enjoy my life when I make that billion dollars. But that's not how the roller coaster ride works. And not to plug, uh, not to plug your wife too much, but I felt like the when my wife and I were on that path, uh, we, we got to know each other because your wife helps people with that transition. I think we were on a a path where we were I'm not going to say growing apart. We had a pretty solid foundation in our relationship, but when you're both tra- you have two kids and you're both traveling a quarter million miles a year, you sort of high five on Friday night, you know, catch up on sleep, and then you're on the air at the airport again on Sunday. We hit that moment where it was like, for what? You know, like what what are we doing here? We're gonna be one of those statistics where you give up everything in order for what, a newer car that no one cares about? Like no one cares about legitimately. So um and you're I mean, there's a whole industry now of people who help you through that transition of like that crisis of I thought I would wanted this thing, but I ended up not wanting this thing. So this class is about uh, trying to teach people the skills that they need to be entrepreneurs or to think entrepreneurially. You had some anecdotes in the book about things that you learned from your father with respect to entrepreneurship. What are the things that we should be teaching or can be teaching young entrepreneurs or hopeful entrepreneurs? So I think we get back to that definition, right? And I'm not sure what article you shared with um, with the class that I wrote, but um, all that happened in like the initial COVID fog. So it was just like stealing five minutes away from my children to write articles for the New York Times. I wouldn't recommend doing that again, but here we are. We talked about that Schumpeter's definition of an entrepreneur, but Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter was not the man who coined the term entrepreneur. He wasn't the first one to write about it in that sense either, right? He came around, he wrote that in 1947, I think, uh, like two years before he died. You know, the, the term is a French term. And uh, it used to mean all sorts of things, uh, a military commander, somebody who led an orchestra. I mean, it, it kind of goes back. But in about 1730, there's this French-Irish economist, uh, Richard Cantillon, in Paris. And he writes a book, which actually gets published like 20 years after he dies. It's a series of essays on the economy. It's one of the sort of first books about modern economics. And in it, there's a chapter on the entrepreneur. And he says, you know, the entrepreneur, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who work for someone else for a fixed wage. You're going to be paid $1,000 a week or whatever. And there's those who, who work for themselves. And all the rest are entrepreneurs, from the beggar in the street and the farmer who takes their pumpkins to market to the wealthy merchant who sends ships across oceans and... and um, and sort of grows these empires. And I think that, you know, that is still true today, I think. And what is the thing that links all of them together? What is the thing that links the person who might have a side business or side hustle in their dorm room at Western selling logo caps or, I don't know, it used to be weed, but I guess not, whatever, like selling some service or some sort of thing. Does anyone here have a small business that they do? I'm going to use you as the example. No. Masks, anybody in the mask making business? They, they can't get to mute quick enough or uh, put up their hand, but there are a handful for sure. Okay, yeah. So whatever your business is, right? Whatever that thing is, to your, your titan of business, to the guys at Shopify or you know whoever owns that, that sort of big thing, the poster child of entrepreneurship. And the only thing that links them together, it's not money, it's not growth rates, it's not funding, it's not children screaming in the background, 
it is two things. It is freedom and risk. Every entrepreneur has and accepts that duality of forces into their life when they become an entrepreneur and they live with it throughout the course of their life as an entrepreneur. The freedom is the freedom to determine your work, what you want to work in, how you want to build that work, and, and why it's important to you and how you structure your life and your work around each other, right? And so for someone like my wife, Lauren, uh, who's a career coach, um, and, and that's how Erica had known her, and I interviewed her for a podcast, and myself, you know, who is a, a, essentially a freelance writer and speaker and journalist, like, we have structured our life around that idea of lifestyle. We want to spend as much time with our kids as possible, and we probably sacrifice money to do that. But this past summer, for example, you know, after dealing with fighting with the kids and juggling school, homeschool and, and whatever in this pandemic, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to work this summer. I'm going to do nothing but like just be with the kids because there's no other option. And that was the freedom that I had. So that freedom on the other end of the spectrum could be, I'm going to be the person that builds this billion dollar thing and nothing's going to stand in my way. I'm going to put hundred percent of my time to it. And I don't care what happens. I'm going to be the person that chooses my freedom to give back to my community. I'm going to do it in order to live up to a certain set of values, whether they're environmental values or religious values or social values or whatever it is. It is the freedom to define your work in the way that only you can and the only way to do that with complete control is by working for yourself because you can't go and work at McKinsey and say, oh, but by the way, I want to define my work in this way. And they're like, There's, see that thing? It's a dork. Okay. But along with that freedom, which is the intoxicating, wonderful part of entrepreneurship that everybody keeps everybody up at night thinking about these wonderful things that could happen, the great success they could have, the difference they could have, what their life could be like if only they were to do this, comes risk and they're inseparable. The risk, the risk, first of all, yes, financial risk. If I don't work and don't succeed, I will not have this roof over my head. I took the summer off of work. I made $0 because nobody was paying me anything because I decided not to work. There was no check coming in. I didn't take serve. I didn't take the Justin bucks. Probably should have. And so, you know, there is always that risk, the risk that the business could fail. And of course, now during the pandemic, you go out in your community, whether it's London or here in Toronto, and you look at all the stores and restaurants and gyms that have closed down and hopefully seen the strip clubs. And you know that behind that boarded up window is a family and a life and hopes and dreams and investments and debt. And that leads to the other part of the risk, which is more than just money. It is that personal thing, right? Because as an entrepreneur, you tie your personal identity and your life in with your business. It's your idea. It's your capital. It's how you identify yourself. I am David Sachs, the writer. Here's my name on books. This is all I kind of have. I am so intricately tied to that, that when the inevitable ups and downs of the business cycle happen, I am torn along with that personally in a way that I can't blame on the bosses upstairs or the market or Susan in accounting who screwed up the thing or whatever. It's all on me. And that's the other thing that keeps you up at night is that worry, not just about your financial performance, but about the very essence of, of your identity. And so while most courses and books and, and 
articles about entrepreneurship will focus on the business strategy and sales and marketing and all the sort of technical aspects that you need in order to become and grow and succeed as an entrepreneur. And all of those are extremely important. Whatever Eric's teaching you here, listen to, please. One of the things you actually really need to start thinking about if this is something that you genuinely want to pursue is that relationship between the freedom and risk and how you're going to deal with that. What is the freedom that you actually want? What is your reason for being an entrepreneur besides just making money? Or maybe that's entirely it. And what is the risk that you're willing to entail to do that? And how are you going to deal with that? Because it is not going to be just this, great, I want to be a billionaire and I'm willing to take the risk if I lose the money or whatever. It's going to be a much more complicated thing. And this is the thing that often separates the entrepreneurs who are successful in the long term from those who aren't, is that they're able to deal with the emotional consequences of it. They're able to navigate the, you know, they're able to endure the roller coaster ride, the ups and downs and the twists and turns and all the nauseating stuff in the middle, because that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, at least I thought I would be the exception, you know, like, no, I, I can balance it all. I'll have the perfect family life and I'll be in good shape and I'll eat well and I'll be a great dad and I'll keep cooking my own meals. Go uh, on, go on. Eric. Yeah. I'll volunteer and all those things. Uh, the reality is at, le at least for me, the, after kid number two, it just all sort of, I was like somehow keeping it together and then it all just sort of fell apart. You're not supposed um, to tell that to these 20 year olds, Eric. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think reading age yet. Come on. Well, I think it ultimately, yeah. Right. Kids screwed up. Here's, here's the lesson from this. Screw everything up. No. Um, but it's a, they're, they're a forcing function because yeah. it, it made me think about what were actually was important. And I ended up coming back to teach full time. And I feel like truly this is where I'm, this is where I want to be in some capacity for the rest of my life. So cool. So the balance between freedom and risk, I, I like that. We're a little bit over time, but I know you've got some flexibility, it sounds like, which is awesome. The world is um, a giant black hole. We won't spend too much time, but I've got a bunch of questions, uh, not in that chat, but uh, privately to me, and uh, students have had a chance to upvote them. So there's one that got upvoted uh, the most, and that's from Osman. Um, do you want to, so the original question was, your view that the vast majority of VCs are uh, don't realize that all of these biases are baked into their investment philosophy. Like the question was like, do they not realize that those biases are baked in and why do they continue to focus on this sort of model given that the majority of companies and founders don't fit that narrative? That's a really good question. I, I think there's a realization that it is an issue like other issues like systemic racism, you know, in various other parts of the society, but it works for them. So, you know, we've elevated the venture capitalist to this exalted place as this kind of gatekeeper of entrepreneurship. And that's happened through the success of companies like Facebook and the popularity of, of you know, well-known VC investors like Peter Thiel, who is a truly evil individual, and, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen and, and others here in Canada, for example, you know, who are constantly written about and profiled and, and asked to sit on panels and, and whatnot. Um, and we baked it into these models of demo days and incubators and accelerators and whatnot. But we have to remember that venture capital is like a very small percentage of the world of investing, even in entrepreneurship, right? Most entrepreneurs, most people starting businesses, even successful, huge businesses that you know about, I don't know, Canadian Tire, Lululemon, you know, Pizza Pizza, whatever, like 
they don't go to venture capital. They don't seek venture capital. They don't need venture capital. Venture capital doesn't fit them. Venture capital is for a very particular type of business. And yet we've expanded it in our popular imagination to be part of something, something bigger and something grander. And I think, you know, to your, to your question, like, why do they not sort of seek that? It's like, they're seeking the this thing that fits into their model. They're seeking the peg that's going to fit into the hole that, that they have, which is like, we want a company that we can invest X amount of dollars in. It's going to do, you know, 10 to a hundred X in, in under 10 years. So we can deliver this return to our investors at, you know, um, you know, 10% minus our 2% and 20 carrier, whatever. That fits into that model, but that doesn't suit most businesses. That doesn't suit most entrepreneurs. And when you focus so much on that, you're actually missing a ton of economic opportunity of all the businesses that don't necessarily fit into that, but could be huge, wildly successful businesses that if you invest in in a different way, could actually provide a great return. And so there are a growing cohort of alternative investors, alternative investment funds, even in the world of kind of venture and technology that are saying, hey, this model of the way the venture capital has been structured and the incentives that it has and the, and the, the problems that it generates by virtue of what it demands is broken and they're trying to build new alternatives to that, that are going to allow for, let's say, more sustainable growth. Or for a company to say, look, we want you to grow this company. We want you to have profits. We want you to grow sustainably. We don't want you to just have it and exit in five years. That is actually against what we want, and we can see a greater value in that. But we become so obsessed with that one thing that we measure so much against that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So another one here uh, that's got upvoted the most. So... Do you see a problem with the way business planning is taught at universities? So how best can you balance the importance of good analysis? So for example, in our, one of our projects, you know, write a business plan and how big is the market and who are the customers and all of those things. Um, so how do you balance good analysis with just, you know, paralysis by analysis? It sounds like a lot of the entrepreneurs you interviewed didn't even write business plans. They just said, I want to do this. Let's go. So how do you balance those two? Yeah. I think it, you know, again, it's remembering this thing's inherently personal and there's no right answer to it. I think that's the thing, right? Like coming up with a plan is good. Looking at, okay, how much is this going to cost? Like, let me do a little bit of research into this to see if it's sort of a viable thing is a smart exercise. And these are tools that you can use. But I think where it gets dangerous or almost anti-productive is like, Okay, so as long as I tick off these 10 boxes, then it's going to be a good successful business. And I think that's where that sort of business plan competitions or the pitch deck demo day thing twists a little bit of that around. It's like, okay, you've said hockey stick growth, check. Okay, you have this cool graphic, check. Like, you promised to change the world, check. You have ukulele music in behind your Kickstarter video, check. All these things are good. Yours is going to be the successful business. And oh, you say you're going to start a company that, you know, sells, um, craft cider. I don't know. Do we need more cider? It's like, Oh, well that one ends up being successful at the end of the day. It's a tool, but you know, when you ultimately take that jump into business, one is like your plan changes on that day one, because it meets the reality of the market. And two is like, it's again, it's not, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and starting a business is not an entirely economic thing. It is a 
personal thing. You're putting yourself into that, your desires, your tastes, your histories, your biases, all of that. None of that fits into the business plan, but a lot of those things are going to be what makes that business what it is. And so I think you have to remember that, right? Like it, you're remembering that it is that risk. It's that personal freedom aspect of it that is going to make that business yours. It's going to make that business its own thing. And, and some of that might be contradictory to what should go in a business plan. Some of that might make no economic sense on the face of it, but it might actually be the thing that, that does well. Ben and Jerry's, you know, they didn't get investors. It was too random hippie stoner dudes in vermont who were like oh let's like let's do you know let's make like these funky flavors and we're going to drive around this cow van you know it's going to be you know it's going to be organic and nobody even knew what that was back then and you know oh we're going to put these funny like things on it we'll let anybody come tour our factory and you know they went to investors i'm sure people like guys this is the stupidest idea you know what what are you what are you two bong heads like thinking about and yet you know that's what it was. That's what gave it the essence of what it is versus, you know, someone who was trying to copy um, Haagen-Dazs or, um, or Baskin-Robbins, for example. So, you know, it, the business plan is a tool and a very valuable one that you, you need to pay attention to, but it is not, it is not the key. It is, it is a starting point. Okay. And the last one here that uh, I think still is the, one of the higher upvoted ones. So you mentioned about this sort of wall of heroes with these great entrepreneurs uh, sitting yeah. next to the people who change the world in, in different ways. Um, and the question was, do you think that with that great power comes great responsibility where entrepreneurs are now going to be held to this sort of higher standard where they, you know, sort of new definition. It's not just innovation and disruption. It's actually going to be measured against social justice and activism and all those mm -hmm. sort of things, sort of the not just for profit businesses. Yeah. Is that, are we, is our narrative of what makes the hero entrepreneur changing? Who is that Uncle Owen that said that from Spider-Man? Great power comes great responsibility. Um, Uncle Owen? Yeah, I think so. Uh, possibly. I mean, look, Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, they might be your hero. If those are your values, if you're a libertarian and you believe that the, the thing that an entrepreneur stands for is what you read in the fountainhead. And, you know, it's all about just innovating and creating growing the economy and like that is the thing and there are others who like ben and jerry believe that it means something greater or you know yvonne schwinard from patagonia or you know any other numbers of entrepreneurs that that believe it's it's something great else that's where that that personal aspect comes from i think and that's where that diversity of voices and faces in entrepreneurship is something that's important because we typically you know, it's like there's this like tack on of, of values and ethics. It's like, oh, we're a company and for every shirt we sell you, we're going to give another one to charity. And, you know, that's what we do. That's like the good thing that we do. And you're like, okay, cool. Tick. You've, you've ticked off the, the corporate social responsibility box. And that's what gets your articles written about and whatever. But like, there's another aspect of it is the company that makes shirts and they don't give them away, but they actually have created a, a more cooperative system of the way they treat and pay their employees and they don't brag about it, but it's actually something that keeps more people in that community and keeps more jobs and gives them a better wage. And, you know, is sort of that quieter thing. Every entrepreneur brings their own personal values to what they do, regardless of what those values are. And that shapes that business. But I think there's definitely a corrective that we're seeing now, especially in the world of tech. I mean, 
you know, if I asked you guys 10 years ago, the Ivy class, who would see Mark Zuckerberg as a hero, there'd probably be a lot of hands going up. I, I mean, does, does anyone see Mark Zuckerberg as a hero today? No, he's like a pitiable, despicable, oh, Zuckerberg, you're there. Um, uh, you know, a moral figure who, I mean, it's like, you know, he's was asked questions the other day about something in an interview. And it's like, so how did you feel about this genocide that happened specifically because of what you did? And he's like, well, we just try to, you know, keep, ever, let everyone have conversations. Um, you know, that, that does not seem like the type of person that belongs next to Martin Luther King on a wall in a conference center in King City, Ontario. Okay, well, David, we could go on for some time, and I got a bunch of questions here, but uh, I've kept you 15 minutes past when I promised I'd have you out of here. So I really appreciate you coming in and sharing a little bit about what you learned with your class and your expertise. It's been good to reconnect. You're welcome to stick around, but I know you've got other obligations, so please uh, get out of here, but we really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.